It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, everybody. Before we start the show, I wanted to give you a heads up that we are going to be doing a live broadcast of Intercepted in Chicago, Illinois, on October 9th. It's going to be part of the Third Coast Audio Festival. That's October 9th at 7 p.m. at Logan Square Auditorium in Chicago as part of the Third Coast Audio Festival. Our headliner guest for that show is Eve Ewing. We're going to be adding more guests. Keep following our Twitter page for more information. Our handle is simply at Intercepted. We'll also post info on how you can get tickets and more. Today is the controversy surrounding Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh reaches an all-time high. The judge got a call from the president himself. The wettest we've ever seen from the standpoint of water. He is about to describe what this whole thing has been like. In America, uh, we have fairness. I want a fair process. America's about fairness. I want a fair process. A smear campaign, pure and simple. We're going to plow right through it and do our job. Fair process means hearing from both sides. Have a fair process. A fair process, I just want a fair process. I just want a fair process where I can be heard. What am I supposed to do? Go ahead and ruin this guy's life based on an accusation. I am looking for a fair process. All I'm asking for is fairness. All I'm asking for is a fair process. Uh, I, I think she's mistaken. I think she's, she's mistaken something. Again, just asking for a fair process. Again, I'm just asking for a fair process. Fair process, let me be heard. Fair process here from both sides. And she said, well, it might not be him, and there were gaps, and she said she was totally inebriated, and she was all messed up, and she doesn't know it was him, but it might have been him. Oh, gee, let's not make him a Supreme Court judge because of that. This is a con game being played by the Democrats. Through all these years that are in question, you were a virgin. That's correct. I'm not going anywhere. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 67 of Intercepted. In less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. <laughs> Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. 
There's one level where I believe that the presidency of Donald Trump has actually brought a positive development to the discourse in our society, the discourse around the world. He has united many nations in openly laughing at the hubris and bravado of the United States. Yeah, I I know that they were specifically laughing at Donald Trump at the UN. I also thought it was pretty funny. But as I said over and over, Trump is a product of the American political system. When you strip down or strip away the buffoonery and the arrogance and the lies, and you look at the U.S. position in the world on foreign policy, Trump is basically in line with the political strategy of the empire politicians, of the elite. The world has long watched in horror as the United States has pursued its imperial march. Trump has made it okay to openly mock it. And while Trump does indeed lie about anything and everything, he simultaneously engages in the big lies, the big lies that unite Democrats and Republicans. That is why America will always choose independence and cooperation over global governance, control and domination. I honor the right of every nation in this room to pursue its own customs, beliefs and traditions. The United States will not tell you how to live or work or worship. We only ask that you honor our sovereignty in return. You see right there, this is a big lie. It's a lie that has been told throughout the history of the United States. The U.S. has never honored the right of nations to pursue their own customs and beliefs. The U.S. invades countries, sanctions them, bombs them, overthrows governments, interferes in elections, assassinates people across the globe. This nation was founded on violating the sovereignty of indigenous people and then forcing enslaved Africans to build its infrastructure. These are the lies that bind Trump to his predecessors. These are the permanent lies of the ruling elite of this country. We have secured record funding for our military, $700 billion this year and $716 billion next year. Our military will soon be more powerful than it has ever been before. This is a horrifying declaration. It's an abomination. It's an abomination that it's true. But is it because of the dangerous deviousness of Trump? Did Donald Trump undemocratically seize public monies to build his unaccountable war machine? Let's look at the vote tally on this whopping military bill. More than two-thirds of House Democrats voted for it. And 85% of Democrats in the Senate voted to give Trump this massive military budget. And to drive home the passion for militarism and empire, this bill was ceremoniously titled the John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act. How is this justifiable to these Democrats who tell us every day about the unique danger that Donald Trump poses? The same could be asked of all those powerful Democrats who voted to give Trump widespread surveillance powers and capabilities. Now, what they'll tell you is the military needs it, that we're supporting the troops, the CIA and the NSA, they need it. They're keeping the homeland safe. You know what? That's bullshit. This is all about the politics of empire, imperialism, and in some ways, crowd control. Here we have yet another example. Trump bragging about pulling out of the UN Human Rights Council because he was enraged that nations actually voted to condemn Israel or that they refused to be a mouthpiece for Washington. 
So the United States took the only responsible course. We withdrew from the Human Rights Council, and we will not return until real reform is enacted. For similar reasons, the United States will provide no support and recognition to the International Criminal Court. As far as America is concerned, the ICC has no jurisdiction, no legitimacy, and no authority. The ICC claims near-universal jurisdiction over the citizens of every country, violating all principles of justice, fairness, and due process. We will never surrender America's sovereignty to an unelected, unaccountable global bureaucracy. America is governed by Americans. We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. All of this sounds like crazy, unhinged nationalism, authoritarianism, laws for thee but not for me, and that is what it is. And Trump is brazenly attacking the notion that international law applies to the United States. But this wasn't Trump's idea, and it wasn't John Bolton's idea. This was a bipartisan position going back decades. In fact, in 2002, when the U.S. Senate voted on a bill that would authorize the U.S. military to invade the Netherlands if any U.S. personnel were arrested on war crimes charges, it passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. As we said in an earlier episode of the show, it was known as the Hague Invasion Act. You know who voted for it? Joe Biden did. Hillary Clinton did. Chuck Schumer did. Dianne Feinstein did. In fact, 44 Democratic senators voted for a bill that would literally authorize the U.S. military to invade another NATO country to stop a war crimes prosecution of U.S. personnel. Yes, Trump's declaration about international law is disgusting, but let's be honest. In that vote, just 26 Republicans joined their Democratic colleagues in voting yes. And the Democrats controlled the Senate at the time. And this was a bill sponsored by lifelong racist and bigot Senator Jesse Helms. And the Democrats supported it. This isn't Donald Trump extremism. This is the politics of empire and so-called American exceptionalism. I'm deeply concerned that we are really losing our minds in this country, with so many people falling victim to this notion that the U.S. was somehow this bastion of justice and freedom and democracy in the world until the orange-hued monster took power. It's just not true. And when the dust settles on this moment in history, this narrative is going to ricochet into the future. Trump's presidency will be like a ship that, if sunk, would place all the blame for the rot of this empire on board with it. We say a lot on this show that history matters, context matters, facts matter, and they do. But it does a disservice to those people who believe in justice and truth and peace to pretend like Trump is somehow the great anathema. In some ways he is, but not when it comes to the politics of empire. It's important that we work hard to make those distinctions no matter how widespread and group-thinky the flashy story is about Trump ruining America's greatness. If we want to change this country, confront its injustices, we have to always return to history and context to understand how we got here.
Today on the show, we have a special guest for an extended conversation on a wide range of issues from the war in Afghanistan to North Korea, Syria, Iran, Russia, and the election, big tech companies and the role they play in our lives, propaganda, and beyond. Our guest is the legendary American dissident and scholar Noam Chomsky. I'm sure that pretty much every single one of our listeners is familiar with Chomsky, but you'll almost never see him on major TV networks in the United States. Globally, yes, Chomsky is on TV all the time around the world, but here in his home country, nope. And if I'm not mistaken, he has never been on NBC, ABC, CBS, or Fox. He did a few interviews over the years on PBS, on The Charlie Rose Show, and I believe he was on CNN for a couple of minutes once. Such is the fate of dissidents in the home of the brave. Here's one of the few times that Noam Chomsky was actually allowed on U.S. TV. It was way back on April 3rd, 1969, when Chomsky debated the famed conservative William F. Buckley. The show was broadcast under the title Vietnam and the Intellectuals, and it was part of Buckley's show, Firing Line. What seems to me uh, a very, in a sense, terrifying aspect of our society and other societies is the equanimity and the detachment with which sane, reasonable, sensible people mm-hmm. can observe such events. I think that's more terrifying than the occasional Hitler or LeMay or other that crops up. These people would not be able to operate were it not for the this apathy and equanimity. And therefore, I think that it's, in some sense, the sane and reasonable and tolerant people who should who, who share a, a very serious burden of guilt that they very easily throw on the shoulders of others who seem more extreme and more violent. No, I agree. But, uh, but sh- Noam Chomsky is one of the most popular and influential political thinkers in the world. Yet in the United States, you'll only find him on independent alternative media outlets. Look at all the pundits and well, criminals who are constantly on TV today. The people with long public careers in mass killing or mass lying. This is part of the problem. It's a big part of the problem in this country. How different would this country be? Would the world be if Noam Chomsky and other principal dissidents were regularly featured on major news broadcasts. Chomsky is currently a laureate professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Arizona. He's Professor Emeritus at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he taught for more than half a century. Chomsky's recent books include Global Discontents, Conversations on the Rising Threats to Democracy, and Requiem for the American Dream, The Ten Principles of Concentration of Wealth and Power. He's also the co-author with the late Ed Herman of the classic book, Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of the Mass Media. Noam Chomsky, welcome to Intercepted. Very glad to be with you. If you watch, and I know you are not a fan of television news, um, but if you watch particularly MSNBC or CNN right now, or you read the major newspapers in the United States, you can come away with the impression that Donald Trump and his administration, his presidency, represent this grand departure from the way things are done in the United States historically. How much of a departure is the Trump presidency from the bipartisan Washington empire consensus, the way that the U.S. has been governed throughout its history? There are some differences and uh, many continuities. On the domestic scene, uh, Trump is very effectively managing uh, both of his constituencies. 
there's an authentic constituency of uh, corporate power and uh, private wealth, and they're being served uh, magnificently by the uh, executive orders, uh, legislative programs uh, that are being pushed through, which represent uh, the more savage uh, wing of uh, the traditional Republican policies, catering to uh, private interests and private wealth and uh, dismissing the rest as irrelevant and easily disposed of. Uh, At the same time, he's managing to maintain the voting constituency by pretending very effectively to be the one person in the world who stands up for them against the hated elites. And this is quite an impressive uh, con job. Uh, How long he can carry it off, I don't know. On the international scene, it's actually more interesting. Uh, He's being lambasted for uh, taking positions which... uh, in my view, are pretty reasonable. So, for example, in the case of Korea, the uh, two Koreas uh, last April 27th came out with a historic declaration in which they laid out uh, fairly explicit plans uh, for moving towards reconciliation, uh, integration, and uh, denuclearization of the peninsula. Kim Jong-un made history today, becoming the first North Korean leader to set foot in the uh, South since the Korean War began in 1950. He promised a new beginning as he met with South Korea's Moon Jae-in in the demilitarized zone between the two countries. The meeting marks the first summit between the Koreas in more than a decade. And they pretty much pleaded with outsiders, that means the United States, to permit them to proceed, as they put it, on their own accord. And so far, Trump has not interfered with this very much, calling off temporarily at least the uh, military exercises, which, as he correctly said, are highly provocative. Uh, He's been lambasted for that. But it's exactly the right position, I think. In the case of uh, Russia, it's uh, more complex. His policies have, in fact, been twofold. His administration has continued the policies of uh, building up uh, military forces uh, on the Russian border, carrying out military maneuvers, uh, increasing the tensions in an extremely dangerous uh, part of the world. On the other hand, he has also taken somewhat conciliatory steps towards uh, reducing tensions. And for that, again, he's been lambasted, though I think it's uh, the right thing to do. On other issue matters, he's uh, torn up important international agreements. The most significant was the Iran nuclear agreement. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. In a few moments, I will sign a presidential memorandum to begin reinstating U.S. nuclear sanctions on the Iranian regime. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. That's in isolation from the entire world in this case. And that's uh, very serious.
And the most serious of all, by far overshadowing everything else, is his uh, pulling out of the Paris negotiations. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers, who I love, and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic reduction. Thus, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. Leaves the United States as the only country in the world which is refusing officially to take uh, even small steps towards dealing with a true existential crisis. And that's combined with the domestic programs of rapidly increasing uh, the use of the most dangerous fossil fuels, uh, cutting back uh, regulations on uh, economy uh, for, for automobiles, uh, eliminating safety protections for workers and so on. All of that is uh, just a race to disaster. And that's by far the most serious of the initiatives to uh, undermine what's loosely called the international order. Raising questions about NATO, for example, is quite a reasonable thing to do. That one might certainly ask why NATO even exists uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Not that there weren't questions before, there were. But uh, the official story was that NATO was in place to defend the West against uh, the Russian hordes, which, putting aside the validity of that claim, that was the official stand. The Russian cynical blockade of Berlin had brought Europe to the brink of war. It was at last clear that only a strong alliance could deter them from further adventures. On 4 April 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty was signed by Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, Italy, Portugal, the United Kingdom, Iceland, Canada, and the United States. This union of 12 nations became known as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or more simply, NATO. Uh, after the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, a uh, fair question arose as to why NATO should survive. And what it did was, in fact, expand. Expanded uh, all the way to the Russian border, initially under the first Bush, uh, then extensively under Clinton, then by 2008 even uh, offering uh, to have uh, Ukraine join NATO. That's uh, an attack on uh, Russian geostrategic interests that uh, no Russian leader could easily accept. All of this increases uh, threats, uh, tensions, uh, quite unnecessarily. At the same time, NATO changed its official mission to what they call safeguard control uh, the international energy system, pipelines and sea lanes. And uh, though it's unmentioned to serve as a essentially an intervention force for the United States. 
we have a good indication of how the world saw that international order. Uh, the Gallup polling agency takes international polls of international opinion every year. In 2013, for the first time, they asked an interesting question. Uh, they asked the question, which country is the greatest threat to world peace? The United States was in first place. Uh, no, no, one, no other country was even close, uh, far behind. In second place was Pakistan. That was doubtless inflated by the Indian vote. Uh, the countries that are called the greatest threat to world peace here in the United States, uh, like Iran, were barely even mentioned. Uh, interestingly, Gallup never asked that polling question again, and uh, it was the answer was not reported in the mainstream press. You bring up the issue of NATO, and of course, right now in the United States, when Vladimir Putin is discussed, there is a lot of resurrection of kind of Cold War imagery. There are books being published with backwards R's on them, which isn't even in Cyrillic. It's not even actually the letter R. But there's this sort of portrayal of Putin as sort of the Bolsheviks rising and this, you know, idea that Russia is seeking to take over the United States and Russia is responsible for Donald Trump being president because they, quote unquote, hacked our election. What is true and what is hyperbole, propaganda, exaggeration about Russia and Putin specifically, taking into account the U.S. posture toward Ukraine, NATO, but also the issue of electoral interference? What is true is that uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990-1991, there was a period under Yeltsin in which the United States uh, pretty much dominated uh, what was happening in Russia and the region around Russia. Uh, NATO was expanded. The Russian economy totally collapsed under the imposed uh, harsh uh, market reforms. There was a radical collapse of the economy, a sharp increase in the mortality rate. Uh, Russia was really devastated. Uh, when Putin came in, he He's not a nice guy. I would not like to have dinner with him, but you can understand his policies. His policies were to try to restore uh, some role for Russia, at least in its own region of the world, which we might recall happened to be the traditional invasion routes uh, through which uh, Russia was attacked, uh, virtually destroyed uh, several times in the last century. Uh, so this is not a small question. And yes, Putin is trying to restore some degree of Russian power in the world, some degree of Russian authority. One extension of that, and in fact the only one, is the Russian position in Syria. Uh, all of this encroaches on the global domination of the United States and secondarily its allies, which is kind of taken to be the norm. The norm is we rule everything. And if someone else tries to control their own area, that's disruptive of the international system, which from a certain point of view it is. Uh, if you take a look at Russian power as compared with the United States, it's uh, derisory. Just one indication, uh, uh, Trump's his increase in defense budget practically reaches uh, the entire Russian uh, military budget. 
So the idea of Russia taking over the world is uh, ludicrous. What it means is that they're trying often in uh, ways that merit condemnation, but uh, nevertheless trying to restore some degree of Russian influence in the regions uh, surrounding Russia, plus Syria, their one Mediterranean base, and to try to establish a place for Russia in the world system, far weaker than the United States, weaker than China, in fact. One of Russia's uh, international problems is uh, to keep from being uh, overwhelmed by Chinese power. That's the kind of disruption of the international order that uh, is attributed to Russia. You raise this issue of Russia in Syria. Of course, the United States, Iran, Turkey, Qatar, the list of countries involved actively in the just generically, let's call it the Syrian war right now. You do have a debate on the left in the United States about what a sort of just position looks like toward the conflict in Syria. And of course, you have isolationists or libertarians or anti-imperialists who take the position of there should be total hands-off Syria, that this is a a civil war. I think the honest among us uh, would say that, of course, Bashar al-Assad is a war criminal. He is a mass murderer but he is in a conflict with a lot of mass murderers and a lot of war criminals. What, Noam Chomsky, do you believe is a just position to take on the war in Syria? Uh, Is it that people should defend Bashar al-Assad with the idea that it's the least bad option or that this is a matter that should be handled by the Syrians? Or is there any international involvement that you think makes any sense or could be justified under both moral principles and uh, legal principles? Well, the first point uh, to bear in mind, which you already mentioned, is that uh, Assad is a horrible war criminal. The bulk of the atrocities, which are enormous, are his responsibility. Uh, There's no justifying Assad. On the other hand, the fact of the matter is that uh, Uh, He is essentially and pretty much in control of Syria now, thanks largely to uh, Russian, partially Iranian support. The Russians actually entered Syria extensively after the CIA had provided uh, the uh, rebel forces, which are mostly run by jihadi elements, provided them with uh, advanced uh, anti-tank missiles, which were stymieing the Syrian army, at which point the Russians came in uh, with uh, air power and uh, overwhelmed the opposition. The current situation is that Assad has pretty much won the war, uh, like it or not. There was, in the early stages, a democratic, uh, secular, quite respectable opposition, but they were very quickly overwhelmed by uh, jihadi elements uh, supported from the outside, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United States, uh, and others. There's a pending humanitarian catastrophe in Idlib province where the uh, jihadis have been the place to which they've been expelled or fled. If there's a Syrian-Russian attack on that, it could be a total humanitarian catastrophe. There's some indication that the Russians and the Turks may have been provided a 
safe area to which maybe some civilians can flee, but that looks like a monstrosity developing. If there's a way of countering that attack, it should be pursued by diplomatic means. The other crucial question is the status of the Kurdish areas, Rojava. In my opinion, it makes sense for the United States to maintain a presence which would deter an attack on the Kurdish areas. They have the one part of Syria which has succeeded in sustaining a a functioning society with uh, many decent uh, elements. And uh, the idea that they should be subjected to an attack by their bitter enemies, the Turks, or by the murderous Assad regime, I think is anything should be done to try to prevent that. Let me ask you about that point, because you are one of the leading people in the world that is consistently reminding the world that the United States has always adopted a posture of certain Kurds are good Kurds, certain Kurds are bad Kurds, and the United States has poured money and weapons into the coffers of, for instance, the Turkish military explicitly to be used for an ongoing attempt at genocide against the Kurds. So I'm, I'm curious how you reconcile that with a position that the United States would, in essence, be the protector of the Kurds in the context of the Syrian war. The United States, uh, like other great powers, does not pursue humanitarian objectives. It pursues objectives determined by power considerations, and they lead to different positions with regard to the Kurds or others at different times. So, for example, uh, in the 1970s, uh, there was a time when the United States supported uh, Kurds against Saddam Hussein. Shortly after, a deal was made in which they sacrificed the Kurds to Saddam Hussein. That led to uh, Henry Kissinger's famous comment that uh, we shouldn't confuse foreign policy with uh, missionary activity. It's entirely true that, especially in the 1990s, Clinton was pouring arms into Turkey uh, for the purpose of uh, carrying out uh, massive, uh, murderous, uh, destructive attacks against the the Kurdish population of Turkey in the southeast, enormously destructive. That does not change the fact that now the United States could with a relatively small presence, deter attacks against the Kurds in Syria, which could destroy the one part of Syria that is actually functioning in a decent fashion. Uh, We don't expect uh, consistency in humanitarian terms from a great power, because those are not the guiding principles. Uh, Regarding Afghanistan, we're now 17 plus years in Afghanistan in the context of 9-11, shouldn't we be talking about Afghanistan as, A, obviously a war that the United States should have never started, and and secondarily, that the United States has actually been militarily and politically defeated in Afghanistan? Well, my own view, as you may recall back in at the time, was that uh, the use of military force in Afghanistan was inappropriate and illegitimate. There were diplomatic options. They could have been pursued, uh, but the United States uh, wanted to use force. I think the perhaps the most accurate 
description of what the United States did was by Abdul Haq, one of the most uh, respected and honored of the Afghan uh, anti-Taliban activists, who in fact was killed in Afghanistan, who strongly opposed the U.S. bombing, as most of the Afghan dissidents did, and uh, argued that the United States was bombing just because it wanted to show its muscle and intimidate everyone else. And it was undermining the efforts of the anti-Taliban Afghan resistance to uh, solve the problem on the wrong. Working their way through the rush hour that morning, two men were about to offer the US government the chance to topple the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, to expel al-Qaeda from its terrorist bases, and to capture Osama bin Laden. This plan had been put together by Abdul Haq, one of Afghanistan's most respected leaders, and was the culmination of Haq's lifetime struggle to save his country. I think his analysis was correct. Uh, we've now gone through 17 years of uh, failed attempts to impose a US-dominated uh, system. Uh, there is an Afghan peace movement. It's not enormous, but it's significant. It's been there for several years. Uh, we should be doing what we can to support it, to lead them to find a solution internal to Afghanistan, reconciling to the extent possible the uh, conflicting warring uh, factions. Uh, they're ethnically divided, divided in other terms. It's an extraordinary problem. The most we can do is to try to facilitate efforts among the Afghans. Uh, I don't think there's much that the United States can hope to do beyond that. And uh, the idea of uh, imposing a military solution looks uh, out of the question. Do you believe it's accurate to say that the United States has been militarily defeated in Afghanistan? Well, certainly it has not achieved any of its objectives <laughs> after a huge expenditure. So give it whatever name you like. <laughs> I mean, a great power like the United States never really gets defeated. It may not achieve its maximal objectives. So, for example, let's take Vietnam. It's almost universally described as a U.S. defeat. But if you look back at the original planning, this goes back to the early 50s, for why the United States became involved in Vietnam, turns out it wasn't a complete defeat. The U.S. did not achieve its maximal objectives of turning uh, Vietnam into something like the Philippines. Uh, but it did achieve its major objective of preventing an independent South uh, Vietnam from becoming a model that might be followed by others towards a successful independent development, uh, perhaps eroding the whole uh, Southeast Asia, East Asia order, which is what the planners were concerned with in the early 1950s, and that was in fact stopped power like the United States is unlikely to face anything like a real defeat, a failure perhaps. I, I wanted to uh, also make sure to ask you about this ongoing slaughter in Yemen. Recently, CNN and some of the other networks have started showing images of U.S. missile parts from uh, munitions that for instance, killed an entire bus full of school children recently. This video of shrapnel was filmed in the aftermath of the attack and sent to CNN by contact in Sada. A cameraman working for CNN subsequently filmed these images for us. 
Munitions experts tell CNN this was a U.S.-made Mark MK-82 bomb weighing in at 500 pounds. The first five digits there are the cage number, the commercial and government entity number. This number here denotes Lockheed Martin, one of the top U.S. defense contractors. But there was a dearth of that kind of reporting when Obama was waging what started as a secret, deniable bombing campaign. He kicked it off in December of 2009 with a cluster bomb attack that killed three dozen women and children in the village of El Majla in Yemen, and then regularly was hitting Yemen with drone strikes. But it also is often portrayed as kind of Trump supporting the Saudis, when in reality, the U.S. first bombed Yemen in November of 2002. This has been going on for a, a quite a long time. What is the U.S. motivation for uh, this mass slaughter in Yemen right now that is primarily being carried out by Saudi warplanes that were given to the Saudis by the United States. And of course, the U.S. is doing all the intelligence assistance, the refueling and the providing of munitions. But what, what is the U.S. agenda in Yemen, as you can see? The U.S., uh, and you're quite right in tracing this back to Obama, in fact, even earlier, the United States wants to ensure that Yemen will be incorporated within the system of reactionary Arab states that the U.S. Uh, dominates uh, and uh, largely controls. That's uh, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, which is a quite a significant military power by the standards of the region and quite vicious and brutal. The Houthi presumably gets... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Some degree of uh, Iranian support. To regard that as the, the Iran as the major threat in the region is ridiculous. The U.S. and secondarily Britain have been uh, arming and uh, developing, the, supporting the military forces and actions of uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE with the consequences uh, that you describe. It's becoming one of the worst humanitarian disasters in the world. The attack on the port, the Hudaida port. Coalition forces are closing in and the fighting around the airport has blocked a key exit out of the city, making it harder to transport much-needed food aid from Hodeida, the country's largest port, to the rest of the country. 8.4 million Yemenis are already at risk of starvation. The war has created the world's worst humanitarian crisis. We can trace this back much farther, if you like. So back in the early 1960s, there was a war, a proxy war, going on in Yemen uh, between Saudi Arabia and uh, Egypt. At that point, 
Egypt was the center of uh, secular Arab nationalism under Nasser and regarded as the main enemy by the United States. Uh, Saudi Arabia was uh, the center of uh, radical Islam. And uh, very much like the British before us, uh, the United States has tended uh, systematically to support radical Islamism uh, against secular nationalism. Uh, that war was raging right through the 60s. It was significant war. Israel s settled that problem for the United States and Saudi Arabia by smashing uh, secular Arab nationalism in 1967. And that, in fact, is the major turning point in U.S.-Israeli relations. Israel performed a great service to the United States and Saudi, its Saudi Arabian ally and the radical Islamism that centered there by uh, eliminating uh, the secular nationalist alternative. Uh, and since then, uh, U.S. relations with Israel have been kind of unique, uh, uh, even historically, but certainly in the modern world. And this is now another continuation of it with different cast of characters slightly. But Yemen has been regarded as uh, it's the poorest of Arab states, uh, the most miserable in many ways, torn by all sorts of internal conflicts. And uh, the U.S. continues to be committed to trying to ensure that its close allies, the radical Islamist uh, states, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, maintain uh, control against uh, any adversary, Egypt at that time, uh, Iran, which is a very minor participant, in fact, not like Egypt, which had a major army there, very minor participant in this case. I'm sure that you paid attention to the reporting around National Security Advisor John Bolton's speech um, at the Federalist Society in which he launched this blistering attack on the International Criminal Court, the ICC. And of course, John Bolton has always been against international law and its application to the United States. But Bolton did point something out in that speech that I think is important for people to understand, and it, it's accurate. Bolton described how in 2002, the U.S. Congress, in a bipartisan fashion, passed legislation that was known in human rights circles as the Hague Invasion Act. This law, which enjoyed broad bipartisan support, authorizes the president to use all means necessary and appropriate, including force, to shield our ser service members and the armed forces of our allies from ICC prosecution. It also prohibits several forms of cooperation between the United States and the court. Such radical right-wingers as Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and many powerful Democratic senators, they actually voted for that legislation. And yet, when Bolton does his attack on the ICC, it was portrayed as, oh my God, look at how these Trump people are so outside of the norm. But the reality, isn't it true, is that this has been the bipartisan power consensus from the very beginning, that no international law should actually apply to the United States and both Republicans and Democrats, including the Democrats nominee in 2016, believe that the United States would have a right to militarily intervene to prevent a war crimes prosecution of any of its personnel. You're absolutely correct. In Europe, as you say, it's called the Netherlands Invasion Act, 
authorizes the president to use military force as they put it to rescue any American who might be brought to trial anywhere. So you're quite correct. It's unfair to blame this position on Trump and Bolton. It goes way back, and it goes much farther back than that. So, for example, uh, let's go back to 1984. Uh, the United States in 1984 was, was uh, by the World Court, was uh, ordered to uh, terminate what was called unlawful use of force, which means international terrorism against uh, the state of Nicaragua, and to pay very substantial uh, reparations. Ducking the world court on the question drew barbs too on the House floor. Mr. Speaker, many of us have known for some time that the Reagan administration's Central America policies couldn't stand the light of day. But now the administration is admitting as much. By refusing to accept the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice over the CIA's mining of Nicaraguan ports, the administration has demonstrated that it knows that its policies can't withstand an inquiry by an impartial, objective international body. The U.S. rejected the authorization of the World Court and did so with the strong support of liberal America. So the New York Times, for example, uh, had an editorial condemning the court as what it called a hostile forum and therefore illegitimate. It was a hostile forum because it condemned the United States. Three years earlier, uh, the New York Times had lauded the World Court as a marvelous forum because it supported the United States in a claim against uh, Iran. But now it was a hostile forum and therefore illegitimate, so the U.S. had no need to pay any attention to its orders. In fact, uh, the U.S. even uh, went so far as to veto a Security Council resolution, uh, basically calling on states to uh, observe international law. Didn't mention the United States, but was obvious what the intent was. All of this with the support of uh, liberal opinion across the board. Now, at that time, the United States was not alone in defying the world court. I think uh, Libya and Albania had also rejected world court decisions, but they later accepted them. So the United States, as far as I'm aware, is now in splendid isolation in having rejected a decision of the world court. And that's entirely consistent with the 2002 legislation uh, authorizing the executive to use military force to uh, block any uh, act against Americans by the International Criminal Court, if that's even conceivable. Just parenthetically, uh, I don't want to get into this, but I do think it's worth just mentioning it, that when victims of the U.S. torture program, the so-called extraordinary rendition program, or people that were taken to Guantanamo or to black sites, filed lawsuits in the United States against Donald Rumsfeld, President George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, or other officials for the torture that they endured or the kidnapping that they endured, the Justice Department intervened in those cases using something called the Westfall Act, which actually has to do with U.S. labor law. And even Attorney General Eric Holder under Obama filed briefs in these lawsuits against Bush-era accused war criminals, saying that even if they had committed genocide, that it was within the official scope of their duties 
and therefore they were removed as defendants in those cases and replaced by the U.S. government, which has sovereign immunity, and therefore they were dismissed. So it's not just on on a level of international uh, war or conflict. It's also on an individual level with U.S. officials, the position of the Justice Department, including under Obama, was that even if Donald Rumsfeld was involved with genocide, it would have been within the official scope of his duties, and therefore he cannot be held individually responsible for it. Yeah, that's a kind of a counterpart to the fact that uh, the U.S. did add a reservation to the genocide convention when it signed it finally, saying we're immune. Incidentally, on the torture program, uh, there's more to be said. Uh, There's good studies of this by uh, Alfred McCoy, an outstanding historian who did some of the major work, among other things, on uh, the history of torture. He's a great friend of this show and has been on several times. He also was my professor uh, when I was uh, briefly an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. Okay, so I don't have to laud him to you. Done excellent work. But on torture, he pointed out that when the United States signed the uh, International Torture Convention, I think it was 1984 or so, the Senate rewrote the convention to exclude the modes of torture that were carried out by the CIA, and that was then instituted into law under Clinton. So you could argue that uh, much of the torture carried out under the Bush administration was actually not in violation of U.S. law. As McCoy also points out, the uh, significant uh, difference between the uh, Guantanamo, Bagram, uh, Abu Ghraib uh, torture and earlier periods was that in earlier periods, the U.S. supervised the torture and trained the torturers in Latin America, Southeast Asia. But for this time, the U.S. personnel were actually involved directly in the torture instead of supervising it and training the torturers. So that's a slight change, but from a moral point of view, not a very significant one. I do want to make sure to get your sense of what's happening right now uh, regarding the United States and Venezuela. Uh, Of course, you had Nicolas Maduro supposedly surviving a drone strike. Also, these generals, mutinous generals, it appears, meeting with the Trump administration to plot a coup, coordinate. It's unclear exactly what's happening, but it does seem as though the United States is trying to once again foment either a coup or a removal of Nicolas Maduro, uh, Hugo Chavez's successor. My sense of this uh, is that the United States would support a coup, but not that it's really trying to instigate it. After all, in the year 2002, there was a military coup in Venezuela, which briefly overthrew the government, uh, eliminated parliament, Supreme Court, Uh, It was reversed by a popular uprising. But during the time of the coup, the United States openly and quite publicly supported the military coup, as did the liberal press. There was a time back in the 1960s, 1970s, when the U.S. was, in fact, in a position to uh, implement uh, and strongly support uh, military coups uh, right throughout the continent. Uh, This traces back to uh, 
decision by uh, John F. Kennedy in 1962 to uh, change the mission of the Latin American military from uh, what was called hemispheric defense. That was a holdover from World War II, anachronistic, from hemispheric defense to internal security. And in the Latin American context, internal security means uh, war by the military and paramilitaries against the civilian population. Now, in 1962, the U.S. was in a position to change, to shift the mission of the Latin American military. And in fact, uh, essentially to prepare what became the first major military coup, 1964 in Brazil, then uh, others, uh, one country after another, Chile, Uruguay, uh, finally Argentina, the worst of them, uh, strongly supported by Kissinger and uh, uh, Reagan, then on to Central America. But the U.S. just doesn't have that power anymore. Uh, One thing that's happened in recent years is that Latin America has, to a certain extent, extricated itself from uh, imperial, meaning recently U.S. control. Uh, This shows in many ways, like uh, largely expelling the uh, IMF, which for Latin America is a branch of the Treasury Department, eliminating the formal U.S. military bases. Uh, So the U.S. is doubtless involved and uh, will continue to support the traditional policies, but not with the degree of power it once had. Uh, In the case of Venezuela, if there were to be a military coup, I don't doubt that the U.S. would support it, maybe with some clicking of tongues about how it's not a nice thing. Uh, But short of that, I think the U.S. is likely to continue with uh, subversion and sabotage and support for the uh, right-wing elements. On the other hand, it should be pointed out that Venezuela is a major disaster at this point, uh, partly for external reasons, but considerably for internal reasons. This year is 30 years since you and the great late Ed Herman published Manufacturing Consent, the political economy of the mass media. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the role that huge social media companies play in our society, given that they are replacing a lot of news organizations or the way that people, changing the way people consume information, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Etc. There's a lot of talk about this. There's hearings on Capitol Hill. There's a lot of pleading with the billionaires to kick certain people off of social media, remove their accounts. What about the way that these entities, the Facebooks, Googles, Twitters of the world, have changed us as people and our society and the way we process, disseminate, absorb information? Well, your words... uh process and disseminate and absorb are correct, but not produce. Uh, The source of information remains the major media, uh, the correspondents on the ground, who often do excellent and courageous and very valuable work. Facebook and the rest may filter information that they get from those sources and present it in ways which uh, you know, much of the public finds it easier to digest. I don't think that's a healthy development, but it does. It is happening, and that means uh, essentially uh, dividing much of the population. Uh, much discussion of this into cocoons, into bubbles, in which they receive the information conducive to their own uh, interests and uh, 
commitments. If you read a major newspaper, say the New York Times, you get a certain range of opinion. It's narrow. It's basically centrist to far right, but at least it's a range of opinion. Those who are more addicted to social media tend to turn directly to what supports their own views, not to hear other things. That's not a good thing. Google, Facebook, and the rest, those are commercial institutions. Their constituency is basically advertisers, and they would like to to establish the kinds of uh, controls over their consumers that will be beneficial to their business model, enable them to get advertising. That uh, has very um, serious distorting effects. And we know that they provide massive information to the corporate system, which they use uh, for their own, uh, in their own efforts to try to shape and uh, control uh, behavior and opinion. All of this is a dangerous development. The, the power of these uh, private corporations to uh, direct people in particular directions and so on, that's a serious problem, uh, which requires considerable thought and attention. In all of the decades of debating these issues and campaigning for human rights and against U.S. wars, have things changed? And is it worth it to spend a lifetime doing what you've done for young people that are listening? I think if we look over the years, we can see that there has been uh, considerable achievements in changing public attitudes with regard to uh, aggression, uh, human rights, uh, civil rights, and so on. I don't take credit for that. Plenty of people are involved, plenty of activists, many of them young. But the changes are very significant. Uh, Let's go back to the 1960s. In the 1960s, Kennedy escalated the war in 1961 and 62. Now, that's when Kennedy authorized uh, the U.S. Air Force to begin directly bombing rural South Vietnam, uh, authorized napalm, chemical warfare to destroy crops and livestock, uh, organized mass programs to drive uh, much of the peasantry into uh, what amounted to concentration camps, strategic hamlets, huge escalation. What was the public reaction? Zero. I, at the time, if I wanted to give a talk about it, I'd talk in somebody's living room or something like that. There was no protest. In fact, for years, it was difficult or even impossible to have public meetings. In Boston, which is a liberal city, public meetings uh, were violently broken up with the support of the press. Uh, churches were attacked, and so on. In fact, it wasn't until about 1967 that a large-scale opposition to the war developed. And by that time, South Vietnam had been practically destroyed, and the war had expanded the rest of Indochina. Well, finally, there was a public reaction. In 1981, uh, the Reagan administration came in and attempted to duplicate what Kennedy had done in the early 60s, almost step by step. They intended to essentially invade Central America. 
white paper uh, blaming the, the international communists, huge propaganda campaign, and so on. It was almost instantly aborted by a popular opposition. There was such massive popular opposition from popular groups, uh, from the churches and others, that they had to back off. Uh, what happened was awful enough, but it wasn't Vietnam. They had to turn to bringing in other states like uh, Taiwan, Israel, uh, Argentine neo-Nazis to try to carry out the atrocities. The U.S. couldn't do it directly. Uh, that's very significant. Let's go on to 2003 when the U.S. invaded Iraq, the worst crime of this century. That's the first war in the history of imperialism in which the war was massively protested before it was officially launched. That's never happened before. Now, it's commonly said that the opposition failed, but I don't agree. That restricted the kinds of military actions that the U.S. was able to carry out. Again, horrible enough, but nothing like Vietnam. Well, all of these are indications of, and there are many others, of shifts of popular attitudes towards aggression, intervention, human rights violations, and so on, which make a difference. They haven't gone far enough, but there's a considerable improvement. Well, Noam Chomsky, thank you very much for being so generous uh, with your time. We really appreciate you being with us on Intercepted. Good. Glad to be with you. Noam Chomsky is one of the leading dissidents in the United States. He's currently laureate professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Arizona and professor emeritus at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. There is a fierce battle underway uh, for a Senate seat, a U.S. Senate seat in Texas uh, between the incumbent and Zodiac killer, uh, Ted Cruz, uh, major right winger, Tea Party figure, uh, and Beto O'Rourke, who is a member of Congress that's been getting a lot of attention now. And they recently held a debate where Ted Cruz actually blasted Beto O'Rourke for calling for justice in the case of an African-American man who was killed in his own home by a Dallas police officer. Now, the officer, as I understand it, has contended that it was a tragic mistake. It was a case where she thought she was in her own apartment. She thought he was an intruder. Right now, today, I don't know what happened that evening. Congressman O'Rourke doesn't know what happened that evening. But he immediately called for firing the officer. I think that's a mistake. Look, we have a criminal justice system, a criminal justice system that will determine what happened that night. Cruz then followed up that ridiculous, despicable attack on Beto O'Rourke's position by tweeting a video of Beto O'Rourke addressing a black church. And well, here's what Beto O'Rourke had to say there. How can it be in this day and age, in this very year, in this community, that a young man, African-American, in his own apartment, is shot and killed by a police officer. And when, when we all want justice and the facts, 
and the information to make an informed decision. What is released to the public? That he had a small amount of marijuana in his kitchen. How can I be just in this country? How can we continue to lose the lives of unarmed black men in the United States of America at the hands of white people? What Beto O'Rourke just said there, I think most normal, sane people in this country would agree with. But somehow Ted Cruz put this out there thinking, oh, this is an an attack. This is a hit on Beto O'Rourke. And, you know, the, the sad thing is that for the very kinds of people that Ted Cruz is targeting, the kinds of people that support Trump's political agenda and Cruz's political agenda, it probably will work. The fact that Beto O'Rourke was in a black church, the fact that he was saying this about the killing of unarmed African-Americans, including in their own home, the calls for accountability for police officers who engage in this kind of conduct. And in Texas, 67 people have been shot and killed by police officers this year alone. That's according to data collected by the Washington Post. Now, add to that number one more person, Botham Shem Jean, an unarmed black man who, as I said, was killed in his own apartment by off-duty Dallas police officer Amber Geiger. Geiger claims that she mistook Jean's apartment for her own and she fired her gun at him after he didn't follow her commands. Mind you, Jean was in his own apartment, sitting on his own couch, watching football on his own TV. Geiger does live in the same apartment complex, one floor below, but whatever the actual story is, it's a common one in Dallas and across this country. Police brutality, police killing against men and women of color is an everyday possibility, whether you're walking while black, driving while black, and now it seems even sitting in your home while black. As these crimes become more visible, more and more people are using their platforms to speak out. Bobby Sessions, an up-and-coming hip-hop artist from Dallas, Texas, is one of them. His latest record, Revolution, the Divided States of America, he spells America with three Ks instead of the C, is a ruthless examination of the reality of police violence and racial inequality in this country. But not only has Bobby Sessions put his convictions on the mic, he's done the work in real life too. He recently participated with the organization A Million Hoodies at Tuskegee University, where he worked with Samira Rice, the mother of Tamir Rice, and others to help find solutions to confront injustices facing communities of color. Here is Bobby Sessions. I'm Bobby Sessions, the legend from Dallas, Texas. I'm an artist signed to High Standards and Def Jam Records. America, what are we doing? Don't have an answer song to start questioning humans what is donald trump discussing with putin give me time i would hate to rush a conclusion puerto rico saying nothing we create a monster shoot paper towels in the crowd like it's david busters make me wonder what life is hard cold as ice is love oppression but you hate a muslim i see an end for the antics while seeing intro reactions the activists versus analysts panel let's have a fight pan the camera the people asses kaepernick in the right it's a domino effect every issue ain't black and white Pleasant Grove is in southeast Dallas in an area called Buckner Terrace, an all-black neighborhood. It was home. That was my start for 12 years, and then uh, we moved to a suburb in Dallas County. My parents saw that the school district that I was in wasn't providing the best education possible for me and my little brother, so they worked really hard and, and got us to Rylette and 
It was traumatic, honestly, because of the culture shock, a predominantly white neighborhood on like on a golf course and there's nobody that looks like me or understand my culture. The first rappers I remember hearing uh, was Tupac and Will Smith, <laughs> the, the oddest uh, <laughs> uh, first impressions ever. Here we go, turn it up, let's Start to study Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Ice Cube and Biggie Smalls and Eminem and Jay Z and uh, my love for for hip hop runs pretty deep. I graduated from high school early and then I got admitted into the University of North Texas. At this time. I never had the self-image of a rapper. I used to freestyle my whole life, and I would write. Uh, I was in like creative writing honors classes and stuff like that in high school, but I used to write more short stories and poetry. When I went to UNT, every Tuesday, they had something called Poetic Justice, and it was poets, rappers, singers, instrumentalists. They would stand in a, in a huddle at this gazebo and display their talent. I'm going to ask y'all one more time. What's the number one rule here at Poetic Justice? Respect the mic! Respect the mind. And that's how I go. I go and recite some poetry, and the place went crazy. <laughs> and at the end, they would have a freestyle cipher. And I'm watching the reaction that the guys are getting from rapping in the cipher, and I still had the competitive switch up, and I felt like I was better than those guys. So I went home, I wrote a rap, I came back the next Tuesday, which was November 16, 2010. And I recited a rap and people went crazy and I knew that was going to be my career from that day moving forward. My academics was good my first semester in college, but I knew that I had to pick one. I, I was going to be okay at music and okay at school. For me, I felt like I had to pick one to be great at, to master, and I knew that that next semester I needed to drop out. So I didn't go to none of my classes. I started recording about 30 minutes away from Denton in a city in Dallas called Garland, Texas. And I just started pursuing the dream. Like, and I felt I was so good that I was going to get a record deal <laughs> right after dropping out of school. And I found out that life doesn't work that way. It was just a super rude awakening. So I started bouncing from like job to job. I enrolled back into school. At one point, I was a full-time student. I was doing music full-time. And I was working two jobs. And I was just average at everything. And after doing that, I finally got some stability as an adult, but I'm still not happy because moving boxes is not what I was destined to do. I felt that in my being. I'm supposed to rap and put words together. So December 31st, 2014, I left my nine to five job with $50 in my bank account to pursue music full time again. And it worked out this time.
January 2nd, two days later, an article came out from the local newspaper called um, the Dallas Observer, and it said five Dallas rappers to watch for in 2015. And Mark Cuban retweeted it on Twitter or whatever, and I was like, see, this is a sign from the universe. Everything's going to work out. <laughs> and I was just riding like the energy of that. And then I put out a song called Black America. I'm on the corner selling cigarettes. My name is Eric. I don't even own a weapon. Why you showing this aggression? Everybody here can tell you I'm a peaceful person. Never have I ever been a terror to my neck. Applying your pressure so you choke me. Yeah. All the cops are stopping me. I die from every step. I'm exhausted. I'm a fighter. Don't even suffocating. I can't make it losing. I'm a Michael Brown and Eric going to Bobby session next. It has been so many cases. Easy to forget. Do anybody else remember tennis six? Do anybody else remember getting glitched? 2014, 2015 was a crazy year for us as a country watching police brutality on film. It's finally like documented. There's proof of it. People getting killed on Facebook Live, like all these number of different things. Hands up, don't shoot. Uh. Hands up, don't shoot, don't shoot. Uh. Hands up, don't shoot. Uh. Hands up, don't shoot, don't shoot. Uh. My cousin that got killed by law enforcement back in 2012. I was working at Walmart at the time. I was on Twitter during a work break, and I saw that it was a riot in South Dallas and that some guy got um, shot and killed by the police. And I just saw, like, a lot of people talking about it, but I never saw the name or anything like that, and this was earlier in the day. Hundreds of protesters there taking to the streets. This after an officer shot and killed a suspect that was reportedly unarmed and then around eight o'clock at night i got a text from my mom i think she said like you free or something like that and i knew something bad had happened so i went into the bathroom and called her and she was like there's some bad news and like i just started connecting the dots and then she told me that my cousin got killed and i was like in south dallas she was like yeah i was like was there a riot she was like yeah according to police the victim james harper was shot after leading police on a chase. The officer claims he was fearing for his life when he shot Harper dead. But the victim's families and hundreds of protesters aren't buying it. Just like the Anaheim case. That's the weirdest thing to find out on Twitter. You see things like this happen all the time on Twitter, on social media, on the news. But since it's not with your family, We've been kind of uh, desensitized. Like, it just, it's just an everyday thing. It's normal now. He got killed in July 2012. The last time I saw him was Christmas the year before. And he was at my parents' house, and we're all eating and, and just having good family time. And then you find out that he's gone and that the officer felt like he was reaching in his pocket for a weapon. And then after he's already dead, you go in his pockets and there's nothing there. It was disturbing news, to say the least. And I feel like, again, I have a responsibility to keep his name alive because most of the time when tragedies like this happen, there's nobody in the family that has a platform to speak out about it and it get hurt. So I wanted to make sure that I'm using my platform properly. Yeah, 
lead the races, beaming hatred toward the colors, running lovers, running mothers, seed is taking, need an angel, dream the day of free escaping, lead the cages, all the dungeons, duffer covers, feed the chasers under tunnels, dogs are running, cops are coming on the horses, we can make it, lead the place and roll the tough for one another, keep from fainting from the pressure, got me stressing, will they catch you? This don't look good if you look like me. In the song Like Me, I'm drawing a correlation between police brutality and slave patrol. Like the first cops in the South were literally slave patrol, which is why black people get offended today when we go on the news and we see these stories reported as isolated incidents. This has been consistent behavior for a long time. Honey, year later, no crime when they shot us. Baby mama knocked up, baby daddy locked up. Running on the block, cause I'm getting sick of master. Where I'm from, niggas ain't thinking about the masters. Thinking about the bachelors. Wanna be a bachelor, legendary rapper, but still don't own the masters. Get the money fast, but we spend the money faster. Trouble never passed us, I'm talking to the pastor. Jumping my advance, I never took the gift. Yeah, never trust myself, shit. Fucking my advancement, never trust the bank. No, tucking out the mattress Never trust a pig, fuck him, busting at the badges Busting out the bando, what the fuck you saying, no Gotta move the keys, a piano, locksmith Never doubt the culture, we ain't got shit Stand for the lost, get us found, what's the plan, no Things don't look good if you look like me I foresee it being a time where Me and people that look like me, when we see a police officer, we feel safe and we feel protected. Like, they're there to serve and protect. For most of us, it feels like they're here to control and harass. And I think having uncomfortable conversations with each other, holding each other accountable, and we need some justice for these murders. We can't go shoot and kill somebody and get away with it and there's some code to protect us. Like, it needs to work both sides the police officers that's your job and the people that are focused on serving and protecting the community those are the people that need to have those jobs and I'm willing to have those conversations with them and hear from them what better ways I can be to help them do their job but we got to be honest about what's happening we can't turn away from people getting murdered and think that because you have a difficult job that that's okay that's never okay and it's been happening for too long and it needs to stop and i feel like our generation is going to make sure that it stops that was bobby sessions speaking to our producer jack desidoro Bobby Sessions' latest album is Revolution, The Divided States of America. And that does it for this week's show. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. Remember, we're going to be having a live show of Intercepted on October the 9th in Chicago, Illinois, at Logan Square Auditorium. There will be information on our webpage at theintercept.com about that. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Letal Molad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. 
Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.